would uh, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. This morning, it's actually three things I'd like to do today. We're going to continue in the story and the narrative um, of Exodus. And uh, the first thing I'd like to do is actually just walk through chapter 5. We're purposely going to stop at the end of chapter 5, even though the story continues. Of course, the story continues all the way until chapter 40, but... I want to stop in chapter 5 for a particular reason, as we'll see in a second here. The second thing I'd like to do this morning is there's a prayer you're going to see at the very end of this narrative that the whole narrative kind of builds up to. And I want to spend um, some time examining this prayer together. And lastly, I want to look at one application point. There's many application points throughout this uh, passage, and I hope the Spirit puts something on your heart to take home, to work on, to grow, and to be more like Christ. But there's one I want to point out this morning. So that's going to be the three points of our sermon, or it's really going to be three different parts. The narrative, the prayer, and the application. So let's start with the narrative, and let's walk through chapter 5. And chapter 5, verse 1, starts with the word afterward. That tells us that the author wants us to look backwards and remember the context of chapter 5. The context is where we left off last week, where Moses experienced a great victory think about this. If you would, look at Exodus 4, verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. That's where we left off last week. And one of Moses' biggest fears as we've been building up to this place where Moses is actually faithful and obeying God was that the Israelites wouldn't believe him we look at verse 31, it says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This was a joy-filled event, which built both confidence and faith in Moses, Aaron, and the people. That's the context of chapter 5. So if we get back chapter 5, verse 1, it says, afterwards, in other words, after this victory, right, Moses and Aaron afterwards went to Pharaoh. Look, it says this, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. They start very boldly in their interaction with Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. If you're familiar with scripture, this is actually a very common phrase we see. We see it mostly in the prophets, prophets would go and speak to kings especially they would say thus says the Lord this is a proclamation of authority in other words this message comes straight from God with the authority of God thus says the Lord the God of Israel let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness we've asked this question before why a feast there's a lot of questions or surrounding why or uh, surrounding why God goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people go for three days and have a feast. But I think a lot of those questions kind of miss the point. The point of verse 1 is this. This is a direct challenge to the authority of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gets it because look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. There's a couple things I want to point out in verse 2. The first, I want you to notice the capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord there. That is the name of God, Yahweh. I'm going to reread it 
putting God's name in there. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? That I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Second observation I want to point out is Pharaoh either has never heard the name of God before or is sarcastically saying he doesn't matter. In other words, he may have never heard the word Yahweh before, and this is the first time he has heard it, or he could have heard that name from the Israelites and, and more be saying, I just don't care. Either way, he's questioning Yahweh's authority. Which leads to a, a third observation of this verse, and this is extremely important. It's the question itself, who is Yahweh? Again, I've been saying through for weeks now, that this is the main thesis of, of Exodus, the book of Exodus. Who is Yahweh? It's the same type of question Moses asked in chapter 3. What does it mean that you are Yahweh? What does your name mean? Who is Yahweh? In fact, I, we're going to see that the first half of Exodus is God really just answering this question. Who is Yahweh? He's answering Pharaoh's question, and by answering Pharaoh's question, he's revealing his name and who he is, his character, to Pharaoh and to Moses. And he's revealing his name and his character to the Egyptians and the Israelites and to the surrounding nations, which will become extremely important when Israel goes out and wars against these nations. These nations knew exactly who Israel was and who they represented. But not only that, this question is revealing, it will be revealed to, to us right, in the book of Exodus, God's character. His name is revealed in the book of Exodus. This question sets up the rest of the book of Exodus. Who is Yahweh? Look at verse 3. Then they, this is Aaron and Moses, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now there's a lot of questions that surround verse 3. A lot of things that we really just don't know. This is a brief kind of overview of the conversation that's happened between Moses or Aaron, Moses, and Pharaoh. But there's a lot of questions like, where did, or how did Moses uh, get a meeting with Pharaoh in the first place? How long after the meeting with the Israelites did Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh? Or why did Pharaoh not try to kill Moses and Aaron and or the elders right then? Or were the elders even there? They're supposed to be. God said, take the elders with you, Aaron and Moses. But they're not mentioned in this narrative at all in this conversation with Pharaoh. Why only three days? How about this question? Who is this Pharaoh? Now, it's interesting. We didn't spend much time on an introduction background context, the historical context of Exodus, and that's partly because there's all types of guesses when the Exodus happened, who was the pharaoh of that time, um, in the history of Egypt. And there's really not a good answer that I've found. Everyone seems to have kind of different opinions and thoughts on it. But I think it's ironic, because this pharaoh is questioning the fame of Yahweh. Who is this Yahweh? Yet it's this Pharaoh that's forgotten in history. The only thing we know for sure about this Pharaoh is that he's the seed of the serpent. It's very clear. 
from the book of Exodus. Remember Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, the seed of the woman, or the seed of the serpent, and her seed, the seed of the woman. In other words, there will be war between the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan, and the seed of the woman. And Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent in Exodus, and it's at war with the seed of the woman, which is represented by Israel. Therefore, look at verse 4. But the king of Egypt, again, the seed of the serpent, said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Verse 6, the same day, in other words, immediately, out of Pharaoh's anger and pride, immediately, the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. Why? Well, he says, for they're idle. In other words, they are lazy. That's why, he says. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. In other words, Pharaoh is claiming to his people that the Israelites uh, were lazy. It's not that they wanted to worship their God. They just wanted time off from work. Verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Again, what Pharaoh is claiming is that the Israelites are lazy. But I think this is probably motivated more out of fear from Pharaoh than the laziness of Israel. Why fear? Well, think about it. Two Israelite leaders have come to Pharaoh and said uh, that God has come to them and told Pharaoh to let the people go. These people that are numerous, these people that Pharaoh is afraid are going to rebel at some time and overtake the Egyptians. This sounds like a possible rebellion that is starting... And Pharaoh needed to stop it before it gained any momentum. So look what he does in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, whether you can find it, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all of the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as, with, um, as when there was straw. Straw was used in the mixture of making bricks. It was needed to shape and form up the bricks. So it was needed in the brick-making process. But up to this point, the Israelites were given the straw as they slaved over making these bricks. Now the Israelites would have to go and gather their own straw and make the same number of bricks as before. Let me just be clear on this. This was an impossible task. And that was the point. It was meant to break the Israelites' spirits. It was meant to work them to death. Remember, Moses was called to go to the uh, Israelites, and it's been 40 years since he's been back in Egypt. And he talked to his father-in-law last week, and he questioned if the Israelites would even be alive for how harsh this labor was that they were enduring. Now the Israelites would have to go and gather their own straw and do the same amount of labor. It was an impossible task. 
trying to snuff out this rebellion with an impossible task. But before we move on, I just want you to look at verse 10 again, because there's an important phrase in here. It says this, So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh. Remember verse 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh. Moses and Aaron were messengers for the Lord, messengers for Yahweh. For Yahweh. They came with the authority of Yahweh, with a message from Yahweh, and they start by saying, Thus says Yahweh. Now look at verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out as messengers, in other words. They went out with a message from Pharaoh and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh. This is a direct challenge to the authority of God. Chapter 5, this passage right here, especially verse 10, is really setting up a showdown. Who is truly Lord over the Israelites? Yahweh or Pharaoh? One commentator put it this way, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge, who has the authority over the people of Israel, and ultimately over all the nations and all of creation, the God of Israel were the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. Pharaoh was seen as a god in Egypt. Therefore, verse 1, thus says Yahweh, verse 1, not only challenged Pharaoh's authority, it was a direct challenge to the sovereignty of Pharaoh and his divinity. And, Eros, Ero, and um, Pharaoh's response ruthless, right? Ruthlessly um, harsh labor. Look at verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Verse 14. The uh, foremen of the people of Israel were beaten. Who are these foremen? Well, there are Israelite managers or leaders. They would be put in charge of groups of slaves as they were making the bricks. And if the, the slaves didn't meet their quota of how many bricks they were supposed to make for that day, it was the foremen that were beaten. It's actually a genius and diabolical structure where you turn the people of Israel against the people of Israel. All this to say the situation got very, very bad very quickly. In fact, so bad, look at verse 15, because I think this shows you just how desperate the situation is. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. In other words, they went over their taskmaster's head, they went straight to Pharaoh and started crying out to him. And look how just bold this statement is. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Listen, I think these two verses just show how desperate the situation was. It was so desperate that the Israelite foremen knew they were in a, an impossible situation, but they went straight to Pharaoh in a bold and straightforward way, knowing they had nothing to lose 
probably were going to die anyways from being beaten to death or just the harsh labor. And so they just went to Pharaoh and put it all on the table. But he, this is Pharaoh, said, you are idle, you are idle. That's verse 17. In other words, you are lazy, you're lazy. It sounds like he's just throwing a tantrum. Um, you're idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, and they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Again, they saw they were in trouble because that was impossible. There was no way they were going to get this done. And that was the point. I really believe even if these four men were beaten to death, that was the point of getting rid of this rebellion, that the leaders of Israel, the talented men of Israel, would be killed. And the rebellion would be stopped. Therefore, verse 20, they, these are the four men, the Israelites, representing the Israelites, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge. You have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. In other words, Israelites now have turned on Aaron and Moses. They have turned on Moses and they're blaming them for what is happening. Now I went through this narrative extremely fast and I did that on purpose because sometimes, and I'm guilty of this often, we dig really deep into a passage and we lose kind of the, the broader narrative of what is happening. And I think we should do that, but we should remind ourselves what is going on in the meta narrative uh, or the larger story of the book that we're in. And I think that we're supposed to see something in chapter 5. Right? Think, remember where we started. Right? We started with hope, boldness, and confidence. Exodus 4.30 says this, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in sight of the people, and the people believed. That's the Israelites. They believed. And when they had heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their afflictions, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It was great confidence, great hope. Their faith strengthened in the beginning, but listen what happens um, at the very end. They're waiting for Moses and Aaron, and they say, they came out and say to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh servants and put a sword in their hands to kill us. But the truth is, the Israelites should have known this was going to happen. Look what it says in Exodus 4.30 again. It says this, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Well, what did the Lord tell Moses? At least twice, that Pharaoh will not let the people of God go. And that his heart would be hardened. Exodus 3.19 says this, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. You're going to go to the Pharaoh, and he's not going to let the people go. And then a mighty hand will come, and then they'll let them go. 
in Exodus 4, 21, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Again, Exodus 4.30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. In other words, the Israelites knew Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. In fact, they knew his heart would be hardened. But the reality of Pharaoh's hardened heart and the evil it produced was just too much for the Israelites. Therefore, they turned on Moses. And all this leads what I really believe is the climax of this passage, one of the most honest and discouraged prayers in all of Scripture. Look what it says in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. I want to stop here today and this morning. Even though the story continues in chapter 6, God's going to answer this prayer of Moses in the very first part of chapter 6 and once again he's going to continue to Moses. But today, I want to stop here because I really want you, I want us to feel the weight of discouragement Moses had at this point. I really want it to settle in because I truly believe there's valuable truths that we can learn from the dark valley Moses found himself in and this prayer it produced. I've been teaching scripture for over 10 years now. Uh, Before I was preaching here full-time every Sunday, I was with the high schoolers in many different places within the church. I've just noticed something. A lot of times in scripture, because we, we know the end of the story, we don't feel the weight of the pain and struggle in the middle of the story. Let me just give you some examples, and I've said this before. Joseph. We know the end of the story because we're familiar with Scripture and we've read through Scripture and God has revealed to us the end of the story. But in the middle of the story, when he was in prison, and he didn't know the end of the story, the weight, the pain, the struggle that must have been going on in his own heart for David, running for his life for years, probably wondering, God, why did you anoint me? Job, faithful man that loved the Lord, loses all of his wealth, loses all of his family, loses his health, has no idea what's going on. We get the the revelation, the the behind-the-scenes curtain of this conversation with God and Satan, and and we know the end of the story, so, so we even get excited as we go through the story because we know where it's going, but in the middle of the story hard that must have been for Abraham God comes to him and says sacrifice your son 
And we know the end of the story that there will be a ram that takes the place of his son. In the middle of the story, how hard that would have been. In fact, because we know the end of the story, I believe we get excited every time we get to that conflict in the middle of the story. Like, well, this is right when God's going to get him out of prison. Right? This is right when he says, stop, don't sacrifice your son. excited. But Joseph, David, Job, Abraham, they didn't know the end of the story in the middle of it. And I'm just guessing. There's many of you in this room that are in the middle of the story and are struggling the same way that these men have. Moses was in a dark place. Let me just give you the context of what's going on. Moses is alone. One of the worst things that could happen being alone. He's alone. His people, the people he loved, the Israelites, the people he's identified with, the people that he's left, wealth, everything this world has to offer, he's left everything. The people he's trying to help have turned their backs on him. And Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, Right, is determined to stop Israel from leaving, stop some rebellion from happening, even to the point of brutal tactics. And you better believe Moses knew his life was on the line. And from a human perspective, perspective that, that Moses was seeing through, this was an impossible situ- situation. It was an impossible circumstance that Moses had found himself in. And God's the one that got him there. So look what he does. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Believe me, my second part this sermon this morning. This is the prayer of Moses, this prayer that we just read. I want to examine it. And I want to see what's going on and what's going on in Moses' heart right in this moment. And see if it resonates with any of us. Verse 22 and 23 is a prayer. I hope you see that. Again, verse 22 says, then, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, right, he's praying here. You know, sometimes our most honest prayers found in the darkest valleys. And this was an honest prayer. Moses is just bearing his heart to the Lord. Let's examine this prayer. Look what it says in verse 22. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You know, the first thing that jumps out at you, because that, that, that line should just jump right out at you. The first thing that jumps out at you is that, that, that Moses really seems to understand that God is sovereign, right? In fact, I would just claim that prayer itself, especially in times of trouble, is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Intuitively, we know God is in control. Even over evil. And that's why we cry out to him bad things happen. I mean, think about it. Why would you pray to God 
what you are praying for is completely outside of his control. When we go to God because we know it's under his control. Prayer, by its very nature, acknowledges God's sovereignty. That's why atheists don't pray. Think about this. Have you ever prayed for someone's salvation? Why would you pray for someone's salvation unless you believe that God had some control over people's salvation? It wouldn't make any sense. Prayer is acknowledgement of God's power and sovereignty. It's one of the reasons prayer honors him. Because we're acknowledging that he is what he is. He is God. That's what it means to be God, that you're in control. I want this to settle in a little bit. Let me just give you another example of this. If you would turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We'll come back to Exodus, so put something there. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I love this story that we're going to look up over. In fact, I just love stories in Scripture, period. Um, I've said this before. I'm not good at thinking up of illustrations, so let's find one in Scripture. Mark 4, verse 35. This is a familiar story to a lot of us in here. Again, it's one of my favorite. Really, Jesus revealing who he is to the disciples. It says this in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on here. Jesus' popularity has been growing. In fact, the first few chapters of Mark, that's one of the main things that's being revealed. Mark is showing us that he's just getting more popular, more popular, more popular, and more popular. And verse 36, it says, and leaving the crowd. In other words, there was a huge crowd at this point following Jesus, and he was getting away from them. They were following Jesus because Jesus was doing some amazing things. Jesus was speaking authoritatively from himself. When I get up here, I speak authoritatively, but only when I speak from this. Jesus was speaking as if he was speaking scripture. He would say things like, I know it's written, but I say quoting scripture, and then he would say, but I say, amazing. He was doing some amazing miracles. So there was this crowd following him, and everyone wanted to know who he was, right? Even the disciples, who is this man? But one thing they know for sure, he was powerful. No one ever questioned that. Everyone knew Jesus was powerful, because he showed Now they're on the boat. The disciples are with Jesus on a boat. Verse 37. And a great windstorm. Let me just interpret that a little bit further. A powerful windstorm. A great storm. A great windstorm arose. And the waves were uh, breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, to really understand what's going on here, you need to know how desperate the situation truly was. And this time, they didn't have life jackets and different ways of getting stranded out in the middle of the the ocean. 
ocean. You just didn't survive this. If you're on a boat, and a great windstorm arose, a great storm comes, and the boat is already filling with water, you're not going to survive. You don't survive shipwrecks like this. I'm trying to think, okay, what's the best way of kind of getting this across? I think a modern comparison is this. If you were on an airplane, just picture yourself on an airplane, 30,000 feet in the air, both engines blow. One of the wings gets torn off. The plane starts to dive. You're not going to survive it. You're not going to get out there with tools and fix the airplane in time, right? So what would you do in that moment? Well, look what the disciples do. Verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him. That should tell you something, right? Their first instinct was to go straight to Jesus. The disciples went to the one person they believed could save them. The one person they thought had the power to save them. They went straight to them. And that's something that's important in the story. They never doubted his power throughout this whole story. I don't think they realized how powerful he was as you get to the end of the story, but they never doubted that he had the power to save them in this moment. Therefore, they woke him and said to him, now let's stop there for a second. Think about that. Since Jesus is God, what is this? It's a prayer. At least it's a type of prayer. They went to God in, in, in a time of trouble, and they cried out to him. You know, the disciples may not have known that's what they were doing. They may not have known that Jesus was God at that point. But in their desperation, like Moses, they went to the one person they thought had the power to save them. In fact, by going to Jesus, it proves they believed he was powerful. That's why we pray to God in times of trouble. We intuitively know he is sovereign. We intuitively know he's all-powerful. We know this as Christians because that's what it means to be God. Disciples knew Jesus was powerful. Jesus' power wasn't what they were struggling with in that moment in their heart. They were struggling with something else. Look at what, what they say. They said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're not doubting Jesus' power. They've seen it firsthand at this point. They knew his power. What are they questioning? What are they doubting? They're doubting Jesus' love they say. They say, teacher, do you not care? You're asleep. You don't care. We are perishing. Don't raise your hand. Just answer this in your heart. How many of you have been or are in a situation where you've questioned the love of God? The storms of life possible situations or circumstances. How many of you have prayed a a very similar prayer? God, do you not care? 
here's the ironic thing. God does care. In fact, he cares so much. He loves so much. Listen, God was in the boat with the disciples. God the Father loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God the Son loved the world so much that he entered into our sufferings with us. In fact, Philippians 2, 5, this is a very familiar verse or passage to us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God. In other words, he was God. He is God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hold on to that. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, the God of the universe, the sovereign one, the God who spoke, just spoke the oceans into existence. He's going to speak the oceans into calmness in a second. (laughs) Because of his love, was in the boat with the disciples. He, that's Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, they woke him. Listen, this is so important. We worship a God that you can never say, God, you don't understand. You can never say that to our God. Back Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, some of the heroes of the faith knew this and, and got it. David understood this. Psalms 23.4 says, Even though I walk valley of the shadow of death. The disciples were in the valley of the shadow of death. Death was just facing them. We're not going to survive this. Moses was in the valley of the shadow of death. But listen to what David says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Same exact thing God told Moses. Exodus 3, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, This is God, but I will be with you. I'm with you, Moses. It's true for the disciples. He was literally in the boat with the disciples. He was with Moses. And listen, he is with you too. He promises a great commission. I'll be with you to the ends of the age. I'll turn back to Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Again, I want to look at this prayer for Moses. Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. It starts and it says this in verse 22, that Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Again, he's not questioning God's sovereignty. 
right? Prayer itself assumes God's sovereignty. But look what he says. Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil? Why have you done evil to this people? He doesn't say, why has Pharaoh done this evil? He doesn't even say, why have you let Pharaoh do this evil? He says, why have you done evil? There's one thing Moses understands in this prayer is that God is in control, not Pharaoh. God is sovereign, not Pharaoh. What is he questioning? Not God's sovereignty. He's questioning God's love. Lord, why have you done evil to these people? It's just like the disciples. Do you not care? Do you see what's happening? Do you not care? Right? You have the power. You can stop this. Why aren't you stopping this? He's questioning God's love. But it's not only God's love that he's questioning. I think we can take this one step deeper. Look at what he says. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? There's a second question he asked. Why did you ever send me? I really believe this is a heart of Moses' prayer. If you look at the context of his interaction with God in the last few chapters, he wasn't just questioning God's love, which I believe he was. More than that, he was also questioning God's wisdom. Why did you ever send me? You know what that is? I told you not to send me. <laughs> if you would have just listened to me and did what I said, it would have all worked out. Send someone else, God. Moses was questioning God's wisdom as if he knew more than God. And I think this is important. think more than ever questioning God's sovereignty, even though it seems like in the church we argue that a lot. I think we question God's love in our hearts. But even more than questioning God's love, I think, I think we, we truly understand both those things. What we question more than anything else is God's wisdom. Why would you do this? It doesn't make any sense. How does this glorify you? Throughout chapters 3, 4, and 5, Moses is really struggling to trust God, is he not? We've seen this, right? And God's talking with him, and he just questions and questions and questions, and he's struggling. Just let's to a, to a question in my head. What does it mean to trust God? Well, I think it believes, or I think it means at least three things. That you, that you trust that God loves you, right? That he loves us. That you trust that God is in control, and you do, that means he can do something about the situation that you found yourself in. Because if he can't do anything about it, then we shouldn't trust him. We should trust something else. Or we look for an answer somewhere else. So he loves us, that he's in control, and that God is infinitely wiser than we are. In fact, one author put it this way. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In other words, he always wants what's best for us. God in his wisdom always knows what is best and God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. But we find ourselves in these situations where God does something that we think he shouldn't do, right? It's not because the situation is outside of his control. 
It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he is infinitely wiser than we are. And he knows what's best, even if it goes against what we think is best. He asks us to trust him. Trusting God means we are trusting his wisdom. Even if we don't understand find yourself in that situation in the middle of the story and you don't know the end and you just say, I don't get it, God, but I trust you. You know more than I do. Secret things belong to the Lord. Right? Even if the situation is hard, I know some of you are walking through hard things. You need to trust God's wisdom, not ours. Which leads to my final point. It's the application. There's many application points that we could from this. Sometimes we face opposition from individuals we're trying to help, like Moses did with the Israelites. That's the point. Sometimes God's purposes don't always proceed in the way we expect them to. Moses expected the Pharaoh just to listen to him, I think, and when he didn't, he was like, whoa, God, I was faithful. Why am I meeting such hard trials? But here's the one application point I want to the Spirit's putting something else on your heart as we've gone through this narrative. Listen to him, not me. Here's the one application point I want to point out. Moses did the right thing with his discouragement. He prayed. He went to the Lord. Even though Moses was questioning God, questioning God's love, and more than that, questioning God's wisdom, he did the right thing with the struggle. He went straight to God. Right afterwards, right when he's left alone, he went straight to the Lord. One commentator put it this way, this is not atheism or even rejection of God, but a bearing of the emotions to the Almighty. This is the biblical way of dealing with anger, frustration, rather than suppressing it. Here's what Moses did right. He prayed. This is the disciples did right. They prayed straight to Jesus. It's amazing how honest some prayers are in Scripture. If you just read through Scripture and you pay attention to the prayers and how honest they are in Scripture, it's amazing. I mean, think of the disciples. Teacher, do you not care? That's an honest prayer right there. Moses, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Moses is struggling and he, he just bears it in front of the Lord and says, this is what I'm struggling with. I mean, just read through the Psalms. In fact, tonight, I don't have time to do this, so I'm not going to, but tonight, just go to Psalms 88 and just read it from, from the start to the finish. It's a prayer. And when you read that Psalms, just, just pay attention to how honest that prayer is. And then think of this. God inspired a man to write that so that would be in the Bible so we could read it. God wants us to be brutally honest with him. You know why? He already knows your heart. Who are you trying to hide from? You're trying to pull a fast one on him by not being honest in your prayers? Don't get me wrong. You might have to repent from the attitude that you have. I think Moses is going to have to repent from what was in his heart, but he did the right thing. He went to God with his struggles. I think intuitively we Christians know that God is sovereign. It's why we pray to him. 
what I think we struggle with is God's love, and more than that, I think we struggle with God's wisdom. The disciples struggled with God's love. That's why they, they or Jesus' love at least, that's why they went to him and said, do you care? Do you not care? Moses struggled with God's wisdom. That's why he said, why did you send me? You should have listened to me, God. But here's the application. When you are struggling, when you're starting to doubt God's love or wisdom, don't run away from him. Run towards him. Follow Moses' example. Go straight to him and pray. Lay it out. If you have to repent and turn from sinful things that are in your heart, do that and ask for forgiveness and realize he is a good, loving God that will forgive you. Listen, I believe the greatest prayers that have ever been prayed were found in the darkest valleys ever experienced. Moses found himself in a dark place and he did the right thing. He went to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I pray that our relationship with you really feels like a relationship, Lord. That we understand who you are, Lord, and there's a reference and, and an awe and holiness that we we need to be aware of, Lord, and constantly in our thoughts as we come to you in prayer, Lord, but also understand that you are God of love, that you are our Father if we have put our faith in your Son. And just like a son struggling in life, Lord, you invite us to come to you and talk with you. It's amazing to pray to you. Pray, Lord, if we find ourselves in the middle of the story, Lord, not knowing the end, and we're struggling, Lord, that we take our struggles to you. That we trust in you, Lord. That we trust in your sovereignty, Lord. That we trust in your love and goodness, Lord. And that we trust that you're so much wiser than we are. God, help us to have that faith, Lord thank you that the next passage that we will be going over when we're back in Exodus is in